A boy entered a grocery store one day and asked the grocer for a box of Does detergent. The grocer was curious and asked the young fella what he wanted the box of detergent for. And the little fella said that he wanted to wash his cat. The grocer discouraged him greatly, but the boy was adamant. So he bought the box of Does detergent. A couple days later, the little fella showed back up at the grocery store and the grocer said, how's your cat doing? And the boy said, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but he, he died. And the grocer said, well, I told you, I told you, you better not use that detergent on the cat. The little boy said, sir, it, it wasn't the detergent that hurt him. It was the spin cycle that got him. <laughs> Oh, the inhabitants of the earth right at this point in the book of Revelation must feel like they're on spin cycle. As they've gone through seven seal judgments and now going into the trumpet judgments, I'm sure they are in a whirlwind. Let me just uh, bring you up to where we're at as you're turning to Revelation chapter 8. Jesus had opened the seventh seal judgment uh, which began a period of silence for 30 minutes. Now, this is quite a contrast, this total silence in heaven versus what was transpiring before. Let me give you some examples here. Over in chapter 4 of Revelation, in verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But you'll notice that there is a celebration in heaven. Verse 11, the statement from the 24 elders and others, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. Then over in chapter 5 as well, the celebration in, in heaven continues. In 5.9, the new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then down in verse 12, the celebration continues yet further. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And notice number seven, blessing. And it doesn't end there. Because down in verse 14 of chapter five, then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. So you have this great, elaborate celebration going on in the presence of God in the throne room. But then you have the silence that's always quietest before the storm. We are introduced to seven angels who are holding seven trumpets from which come the seven trumpet judgments. From chapter 8 in verse 5, shows that these judgments were directed to the earth. And the first four trumpet judgments impact planet earth. Now before I read today's text, let me give you a focus 
question. Why will God severely judge both creation and its creatures? Why would God do that? Well, let's consider that. Let me go ahead and read to you Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Let's pray together. Father, why the wrath of God? Why the impact on both creation and the creatures on planet Earth. Help us to understand the answer to those questions. But I thank you that you are a just God, and I thank you that you always do what is right. As was asked in the book of Genesis, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Because we know you are just, you are righteous, you are holy, we understand that these things are appropriate and they are timely because we have a perfect God. Speak to each heart. Help us to understand your holy nature better as a result of our time together in your word from Revelation 8. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 6 draws our attention to seven angels who are positioning themselves to sound their individual trumpet, one at a time, as we will see. Uh, Thomas points out that their preparatory activity, probably in a deliberate arranging of themselves in the proper order and raising their trumpets in readiness to sound, heightens the sense of expectancy even more. Imagine a scene in heaven, the angels lining up in the right order, get ready to sound the trumpet one at a time. When the first angel sounds his trumpet, now down in verse 7, we see that hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. Now as we're working through this section of Scripture, there will be some parallels with the book of Exodus and the ten plagues that were directed at that particular time uh, against the so-called gods of Egypt. We learn about that from Exodus chapter 12 in verse 12. And in Exodus chapter 9, 
down in verse 24. Let me just read this to you. This is in conjunction with the seventh plague. Remember, there were 10 against the Egyptian gods. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. So just an example of a judgment against the gods of Egypt with hail. And as we think about our text today, did you hear? And hail and fire followed, but it was mingled with blood. Now it is possible that the blood is already in the hail and the fire, if you will, as it comes down to the earth. But most likely, the concept that is being communicated is when this hail comes to the earth from Revelation chapter 8, that it strikes men and sheds their blood. This seems to be in parallel to Exodus chapter 9. And let me now read you verse 25. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. The idea, hail came down, struck men. In the book of Revelation, it looks like the striking produced bloodshed because this is the intent of the particular judgment we see back here in revelation 8 in the second half of verse 7 concerning the hail and fire and they were thrown to the earth to the earth very specific here uh, this brings us back to chapter 8 and verse 5 then the angel took the censer filled it with fire from the altar and threw it where to the earth and there were noises thunderings lightnings and an earthquake uh, Dr. Ryrie, Charles Ryrie makes, I think, a fascinating point uh, concerning this. He shows that the judgments in Revelation chapter 8 are to be taken literally. Uh, he says it is inconsistent to understand these judgments symbolically and interpret in Egypt plainly and actually. See, many commentators take the plagues in Egypt as literal, just as described. But then when you get to the book of Revelation, they give some kind of symbolic meaning to these things. I think that's a contradiction. And when the plain sense of Scripture makes perfect sense, seek no other sense. Now, the result of this activity here in chapter 8, and a third of the trees were burned up. Now, what is that going to do to the oxygen supply? Not only that, and all, and notice the word all, all green grass was burned up. We no need for a lawn service at this point of the tribulation. Let me take you back about three decades ago. I was uh, teaching at a prayer meeting, and one of the elderly gentlemen uh, sat down next to me, and I could tell he was a little disconcerted. A man who walked with God for, for decades and I must have touched upon the book of Revelation at that point, and he thought that there was an inconsistency, and he shared with me what he perceived to be an inconsistency in the Bible, but he said, I never told anyone. <laughs> I, I guess he didn't want to bring disrepute to uh, the Scripture. Uh, may I share with you, the Scripture can handle our scrutiny uh, because every word of God is pure 
And let me show you here in Revelation chapter 9. Pick it up in verse 4. This is about the fifth trumpet judgment. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth. And you're going right now, whoa, hold on a second. How can there be grass on the earth in chapter 9 and verse 4? Because back in chapter 8, in verse 7, it says, and all green grass was burned up. So you go, aha, the scripture has an error. No. Let's stop and think about this for a moment. Number one, we do not know how much time elapses between the first and fifth trumpet judgments. Think about your own lawn. Personally, I get right excited uh, around July and August because it burns up. <laughs> Why? Uh, I just don't have to mow as often. But it always comes back, does it not? So how much time elapses with the grass that was burned up? We don't know. And the second thing to point out, you got to think this is global judgment. So as you go around the globe, certain places will have grass at certain times and will not have grass in other places. So what does that mean? that when time elapses, there will be green grass on the earth in some places. So there's no contradiction of Scripture here. Coming down now to verse 8, we have the second angel, Salni. This is the second of seven. And something, and underline, highlight, make some kind of mark on the word like, because that's critical. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. When we start to have the word like and as occur, which we will see often, particularly as we get into chapter 9, John is seeing something via the vision, the revelation given to him that he's never seen before. There's nothing like it. So the best he can do is give a description with things that he knows and to make some kind of comparison. And that's exactly what he is doing here. So we have this great mountain. And uh, I just quickly jotted down four interpretations of what this means. Uh, number one, some people say it's a spiritual mountain. But yet this mountain, or something like a mountain, affects are physical, not spiritual. Uh, number two, some people say it was just local volcanic activity. Well, why didn't John write that? This is clearly global. Number three, and this is the most uh, pr prominent view, it's a meteor. Um, but let me ask a question. Would a meteor strike turn one-third of the sea into blood? Then I have the fourth view, uh, which I believe is the correct view, and you know what I'm going to say. This happens to be my view. Okay. It's a supernatural created object like a mountain, something huge from God. Uh, see, this best fits the context. Not only do you have a supernatural object that God hurls down from the sky, but that also has a supernatural impact. And I think that's what you see here. It goes on to say in our text, and a third of the sea became blood. What's missing there? Let's take a look at it again. And a third of the sea became blood. Does anybody see the word like or as? No. This is literal. The supernatural object like a mountain is going to produce a supernatural effect. Notice the impact now down in verse 9. 
And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. Well, we knew earlier that there was an impact on food and the supply thereof. Now we're going to have seafood impacted. And imagine how much food will now not be available for those inhabitants on the earth. So a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Commerce is impacted. And those ships could be bringing food or necessary supplies all of a sudden wiped out. Verse 10. And the third angel sounded. Remember this is the third of seven and I just want to remind you, and I've been bringing this up often throughout the series, Jesus' words. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In essence, no one would make it to the end of the tribulation if the tribulation lasted longer than a seven-year period of time. So now we have the third angel sounding, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. Most conservative commentators see this as referring to a meteor. But would a meteor have this effect? Uh, Robert Thomas, whom I respect greatly, but I disagree with here, says... Ancient usage of torch, and he gives the Greek word, to denote a meteor shower shooting through the air confirms this conclusion. But how would a burning meteor cause bitterness? Because it goes on to say, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. See, above, back in chapter 8 and verses 8 and 9, we were dealing with salt water bodies but now we are dealing with fresh water bodies so when the fresh water is no longer fit for drinking you start to have another condition bad condition added to all the others that we are dealing with now a specific detail is given in verse 11 and the name of the star is wormwood the term only appears here uh, in the Greek Bible. However, when you travel to Israel, when you go to Palestine, uh, there is a plant with this name, and uh, it produces a bitter taste, which is interesting. And what's the result? The end of verse 11, and a third of the waters became wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Many people died. Why? It was made bitter. Uh, you recall the incident back in the book of Exodus? Uh, the Israelites keep murmuring and complaining. You think about the Egyptians. Uh, they got a little too much water, right? They followed, uh, the army did, the Israelites through the Red Sea. And after the Israelites had passed through, God crushed the Egyptian army. So now... As Israel continues, they're always complaining about something, are they not? They just don't understand the nature of God. He had done supernatural acts. He had enacted 10, 10 acts against the Egyptians. And the Israelites saw these things, and yet they still seem to be faithless. They're not taking God at his word as the provider. And here in Exodus chapter 15 
coming down to verse 22. And Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Should that cause them concern? No, because God can bring water from a rock. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. That's the meaning of the word. Therefore, the name of it is called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statue and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. But in this case, the bitter waters were made sweet. Conversely, as we're looking at Revelation chapter 8, the sweet waters are made bitter, and that's what we have. And we have men dying as a result, and then God it says, struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened and a third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. Now let's continue to look at the cumulative effect. This would have an impact on the atmosphere, would it not? Then what about the tides, right, that the moon uh, has an impact upon? And what about agriculture as well? You see what is going on here? As we began in chapter 6 of Revelation with the seal judgments. And then you move to the trumpet and then we'll get to the bowl judgments. Devastation upon devastation. And it doesn't even mention so many things in detail like the disease or perhaps the rat infestations or the animals in detail that come out of their natural habitats and attack the people. I mean, there's reference made to these things in part, but not, not in any great detail, but put it all together. And it's a time of unprecedented judgment. That is what we have before us. Now, in verse 13, as we bring our text to a close, and I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven. Now, the Greek manuscripts vary here, whether it's an angel or eagle. Uh, there seems to be greater evidence for the term eagle, but it doesn't make a difference. Saying with a loud voice so that everyone can hear. See, not just locally, this is globally. Woe, woe, woe. To whom? The inhabitants of the earth. Three woes, why? This is the fourth judgment of how many with the trumpets? Seven. So there are three more to come. It's only going to get worse. So you have one woe, number five, second woe, number six, third woe, number seven. And against the inhabitants of the earth, those who dwell on the earth, saying, this world is my home. Those are the individuals that receive the brunt of what has taken place here. So woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So as we transition, Lord willing, to chapter 9, we'll see the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. And then we work our way over to chapter 11, 15 through 19, we'll see the seventh trumpet judgment. But now that we have looked at the text, let me share with you today's main point. 
fallen humanity and creation will experience God's fury. Let me say that again. Fallen humanity and creation will experience God's fury. But again, the question, why? Well, we have to go back to the beginning of time to address this issue. Uh, go with me to the book of beginnings. That would be Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, a text you know I'm sure well, but is worthy of re-examination. Genesis chapter 3. God was so gracious. Six days of creation. A world that he said was very good, including the man and the woman that he had made. But then we see man put in the perfect environment with his wife, the Garden of Eden. And instead of enjoying all that God had given to them, they had to take the one thing that did not belong to them. And as a result of their disobedience, earth, planet earth, would be changed for thousands of and thousands of years. Down in chapter 3 and verse 14, as God is holding individuals accountable for what they have done. So the Lord God said to the serpent, remember, this is Satan, who was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The literal serpents, snakes if you will, are now impacted because of what Satan had done and the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Verse 15, and I will put enmity, the idea of hostility, between you and the woman. And notice carefully here, and between your seed, who is um, uh, Satan's seed? Well, him, the demons, and all the unsaved. And between your seed and particularly her seed. A prediction about the Messiah showing a virgin birth because biologically we have the seed of man creating the child. Here, it's her seed. Notice the description here at the end of verse 15. He shall bruise your head. If you want to kill a serpent, where do you hit it? On the top of the head. And ultimately, Christ will defeat Satan. And it will be a permanent destruction for Satan, where he will eventually be banished to the lake of fire. But yet, it says, and you shall bruise his heel. The Son of Man would suffer greatly for us. Satan will have impact on the Lord. But even in that, Death produces life for you and me. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. The concept is it'd be now hard work. Apparently Eve could have given birth easily. But now it's going to be so much more difficult. Your desire shall be for your husband. The idea now is to rule over him. Because part of the fall is that the woman now would try to master the husband. And if you think about it for a moment, that's wrong, right? Genesis 2, the woman was created because it was not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And by the way, it is Adam's disobedience 
that is recognized mostly here because it's his sin that is passed down to all people, Romans chapter 5. So the woman now, because of the fallen nature, will want to master the husband. And think about the difficulty with that for the home. Verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. See, he wasn't the leader and he should have been the leader. And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is what? The ground for your sake. Think about what's going on now in Revelation chapter 8. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. So we see here the impact on literal planet earth. As a result. As a consequence of the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Now, let's take this to the New Testament over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And let's pick it up together in verse 18. We have a personification. In other words, creation is brought to life. And we see how creation suffered because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And what Paul does here masterfully is to show how creation is crying out for renovation. Looking forward to the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19. He'll put down his enemies. He'll set up his kingdom. And things will be restored to its former condition. That's planet Earth and creation itself will be back the way it was. So here in Romans chapter 8, Coming down in verse 18, and I love Paul's statement here because it's a reminder that whatever we go through here pales in comparison small to what we will receive in the future. For I consider that the sufferings, note that the word suffering is plural. If you want to think about what this author, Paul, endured you just have to go to 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28 to see the catalog of his sufferings which showed his authenticity because he carried on in the midst of his trials. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, see here and now, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul is saying, I know this is hard to the Roman saints, and that you will suffer for identifying with Christ, that the emperor and those under him will not like you Christians and will persecute you and will kill some of you, but all these things are small compared to our future glory. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation, the strong desire of creation, and notice the words here, uh, two in the English, one in the Greek, Eagerly waits. It's a compound term. It has two prepositions to intensify it, affixed to it. Apa, which is from, and then ek, which means out of, and then dekomai, which means to welcome or to receive or to take. For the earnest expectation of the creation, what? Creation is eagerly waiting. If you will, it's almost as if an individual has his or her neck stretched out just looking toward the heavens. 
That's what creation is doing. Eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God when you and I are fully conformed to the image of Christ. When in that future time, earth will be restored to its former condition. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, and it was. The thorns and the thistles, thinking about what Christ suffered for us, that he who hangs on a tree is cursed. Christ became our substitute. The impact on people, the impact on creation, all of a sudden will be undone through the death of Jesus Christ, the one who wore the crown of thorns, who took the sin of the world upon himself, the one who not only became sin for us, but then conquered death. But the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation didn't say, oh, oh, strike me. It's just something that they had to endure but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, when we are changed, creation knows its change is coming. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the time when the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and the child can play with the serpent. Speaking of the millennial kingdom and the glory that will be at that point. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, see the material universe, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit. The moment you believed in Christ, you got a down payment. Spirit of God came to live within you, and it's a testament that what God has started in our lives, he would complete. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were presented to God. Thank you, God, for what you provided. But it also showed that there were more fruit to come. In our lives, where Christ has started, he will complete. The Holy Spirit is that down payment that he will complete the process. So we who have the first fruits of the spirits, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, doing what? Eagerly waiting. See the term again? For the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? It's a faith journey, verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, Here's our term again. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Since we know what is coming, we endure. Because one day we'll be renovated, so to speak. The work that God has begun in you and me will be completed. And we can have that confidence. Faithful is he who calls you who will also do it. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24. There's a confidence that he will complete the work creation will also experience a great renovation. So as we think of our main point, fallen humanity and creation will experience God's fury. And why? Because of man's disobedience to God. But what have the scriptures pointed us to? To the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin that became sin for us, we put our faith in his finished work. 
we change our minds. We call it repentance when we have wrong thinking about who Jesus Christ is. He's the son of God, which means he's the son belonging to the category of being God. And we trust him. And the moment we put our faith in his finished work, that yes, he died as our substitute. Yes, he conquered death. Yes, we're reaching out by faith to receive the gift of eternal life then there will be a great renovation that starts because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. But the day will come when God completes the process and will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And even the futility in this world presently with the thorns and thistles and then what is to come in the tribulation will all be undone because Jesus Christ will come back he will put down his enemies at Armageddon. He will then establish his kingdom and there will be a glorious liberty. Join me in prayer. Father, the wrath of God is real and not to be ignored. Your wrath abides on all unbelievers even right now according to John chapter 3 and verse 36. Father, I pray for those who do not know you that even today would be the day of their salvation, that they would put faith in the finished work of Christ and have that renovation begin in their own lives through the Spirit of God who would come to indwell them. And in Lord, for creation itself, we know, we hope, but it's based upon a historic truth that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died for our sin, conquered death and one day we'll come back that second time to set up that kingdom what a renovation that will be so father we have an anticipation we wait earnestly we have great expectation what is to come so help us now to live for you each and every moment thinking about what is to come and like Paul who considered when he thought about it that the sufferings of this time cannot be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And we thank you. We give you the glory for the glory that's going to be revealed to us in creation also. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.